Good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome to tonight's um, LSE Public Lecture. My name's Paul Kelly, and I'll be chairing this session. It's my pleasure to welcome to the school Jonah Goldberg, who's going to talk on his book, Liberal Fascism, under the title of this lecture, Liberal Fascism, The Uses and Abuses of the F-Word. Jonah, is, as many of you will know, is um, a famous American columnist with the Los Angeles Times and contributing editor to the National Review. He's also contributed and been a columnist to the Times of London and uh, written for the New Yorker commentary, the Wall Street Journal, and many other publications. Now, tonight, Jonah is going to commence with um, not a, a full formal lecture, but with um, a, a shortened presentation. And then what we'd like to do is to involve the audience in um, a more active question and answer session, which we both think is, is the best way of initiating discussion on this um, important and, and, and interesting book. So without further ado, I'd like to um, invite Jonah to give us his initial presentation, Liberal Fascism, the Uses and Abuses of the F-Word. Thank you very much. Well, uh, first of all, I want to say thank you all very, very much for having me here. It's a, it's a, it's a great honor and a lot of fun um, having been invited to come on over here. Um, I should say, just as a point of personal privilege, as a conservative pundit, um, that uh, while the, the introduction was more than generous, generous, it left off what is probably the um, high note of my career as a journalist, which is that when the Los Angeles Times picked me up as a columnist, uh, Barbara Streisand publicly canceled her subscription to the LA Times. <laughs> and uh, in my line of work, from my side of the aisle, uh, there's no higher compliment. And if, if, if I were in show business, I just would have walked off the stage at that point, because you're not going to top that. And alas, I'm not sure I'll be able to top it tonight, but maybe some of you will walk out and you'll turn out to be famous or something. Um, the uses and abuses of the F word. Uh, it has been uh, a common practice for a very, 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 very long time uh, to describe conservatives as akin to, closer to, related to, derivative of, or in some other way related to fascists or Nazis. It is a common intellectual and political trope um, that comes from the left. It has deep and long roots, and it drives me more than a little crazy, which is one of the reasons why I wrote the book. Um, it always confused me profoundly, this idea that somehow my heroes, my intellectual lodestars, were somehow fascists or Nazis. Um, and I should be clear, I, I, you know, I didn't understand this from a very young age. I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, which is famously one of the most liberal neighborhoods in, in the world. Um, we were politically conservative Jews in a very Jewish neighborhood, so we sort of felt like we were you know, Christians in ancient Rome. Um, you know, yeah. You go to Central Park, you draw a little C in the dirt, you know, you cross it out, you know. I'll meet you under, I'll meet you in the catacombs under Zabar's, you know, because uh, it was just not done to be, to be a conservative, and yet, um, 
And so it was even more frustrating, having gone to Rodef Sholem Day School and all these other things, to hear these people that I thought had the right side of the argument be called Nazis and fascists, or proto-Nazis, or crypto-Nazis and fascists. Um, particularly when um, Nazis and fascists didn't seem to be particular champions of, say, tax cuts or limited government. Um, uh, I don't think it should be particularly controversial that the Nazis were not, in fact, pro-life. Um, and as I got older and became more of a columnist and a pundit, I, I ran into this more and more. I would give college campuses, uh, speeches on college campuses all the time, and I would be out there advocating for you know, a repeal of the capital gains tax. And someone will say, well, clearly you're a fascist. And, um, uh, and I always used to have a great grand time with them. You know, I would do this, it was sort of unfair. It was long before I was working on the book. I would do this, so it's sort of unfair. I would say to them, you know, except for the murder, bigotry, genocide, and war, what is it exactly about Nazism that you don't like? And they would sort of look at me with the, the same look of befuddled incomprehension that my basset hound used to look at me when I tried to feed it a grape. And I would sort of take advantage of the pierced tongue-tied silence to make a few points. Um, to start with, the National Socialists were socialists. Uh, the Nazi ideologist Gregor Strasser put it fairly succinctly. He said, we are socialists. He also went on to say that we are enemies, deadly enemies of today's capitalist economic system with its concentration and emphasis on measuring the worth of human beings by their wealth and their, um, and, and their income. Uh, the very first speech that attracts Adolf Hitler to the Nazi party is titled, How and by what means shall capitalism be destroyed? Uh, um, Benito Mussolini was raised on the mother's milk of, of socialism. His father was a member of the First International along with Marx and Engels. He was read Das Kapital as a bedtime story. He earns the title Il Duce, not as the leader of the fascists in Italy, but as the leader of the socialists in Italy. Uh, the name Benito itself isn't a, a, an Italian name. It's a Spanish name because he was named after the Mexican revolutionary Benito Juarez. When he was kicked out of the Italian Socialist Party, it was solely because he supported World War I, the same position that socialists and all sorts of other company, countries had. Um, uh, but because the, the Italian socialists were the second most radical socialist party after the Bolsheviks in all of Europe, um, they kicked him out for it. And even though after they kicked him out for it, he said, look, I was born a socialist. I will die a socialist. Socialism is in my blood. Um, and he kept, throughout his life, he considered himself loyal to socialism. We've been, ever since he made that move, we've been told that he is right wing. Now, there are reasons for this. Um, uh, and I'm going to get into them in a second. But it, it, it's an amazing thing when you start paying attention to it, how much this tendency of seeing fascism as a right wing phenomenon saturates our political culture. Um, you know, I get every, every, almost every column I write about almost any subject, someone will write in and call me a fascist. They're usually from people who think that if you write something in all capital letters, it's got to be true. Um, um, but going back generations, George Orwell noticed as early as 1946 that uh, he writes in, the pol in politics in the English language that fascism has simply come to mean anything not desirable. Uh, Barry Goldwater, who is by today's standards a radical libertarian in his politics, was denounced routinely from LBJ on down as a fascist. Ronald Reagan was dubbed the fascist gun in the West 
um, as a sort of a pun on his Western as days in Westerns. Uh, when I came of sort of political awareness in Washington in the early 1990s is when Newt Gingrich and his contract with America took over. You know, Newt Gingrich was the first Republican Speaker of the House in 40 years, and they took over the House of Representatives. It was a huge deal. Immediately, the entire political class in Washington, the entire Democratic Party, immediately leapt to ad Hitlerum arguments, saying that these guys were going to come in. Uh, Major Owens, a major member of the uh, Congressional Black Caucus, uh, which builds itself as the conscience of the Democratic Party or the conscience of the House, um, responded to an invitation to a bipartisan get-to-know-the-new-leadership cocktail party by saying, these people are practicing genocide with a smile. We're going to have cocktail party genocide. I don't even know what that means. Um, Charlie Rangel, who's now the head of the House Ways and Means Committee, said of Newt Gingrich's agenda, Hitler wasn't even talking about doing things like this. Which is technically true. <laughs> I mean, Hitler wasn't talking about term limits for committee chairs or any of that kind of stuff. Um, uh, in the year 2000, Bill Clinton claimed that the Texas GOP platform was uh, no different than a fascist tract you'd find in any library. Al Gore routinely calls his opponents and his critics, and people who disagree with him, uh, the moral equivalent of Holocaust deniers and brown shirts. Uh, uh, in the popular culture, you will find over and over again that the only legitimate, believable existential enemy has to be from the fascist right. My favorite example of this comes in the movie adaptation of, of Tom Clancy's Some of All Fears. Right? In the book, Tom Clancy has this wacky, crazy idea that ra radical Islamic terrorists might want to blow up some places in America. I have no idea where he could get that idea. Um, Fortunately, saner heads prevailed when they brought the manuscript to, to Hollywood, and producers looked at it and said, this just won't fly. This is implausible. And so instead of uh, radical Islamic terrorists trying to blow up and kill Americans, they changed the existential enemy of the United States to a cabal of European Dick Cheney lookalike CEOs who were all members of a secret Nazi society and had swastikas on the insides of their watches that they would flash to each other as high signs. And this, this was plausible for Hollywood. This made sense. Um, so it's out there. I mean, the reason I, I think it's important to bring this up is that when I often say that conservatives take umbrage at this, liberals say, well, we don't do that. And I think the thing is, is that it's so taken for granted that the further you move to the right, the closer you get to people like me, the closer you get to fascism, that they don't even hear it. They just tune it out as sort of par for the course in political context. It is these, these sort of, the use and abuse of the F word starts at the very, very top of the political and intellectual liberal establishment and works its way down. And I catalog a lot more of it in the book. So where did this come from? Well, there are a lot of places. Uh, I think the best place to start is probably 1928. Uh, Joseph Stalin discovered something quite unpleasant to him. Turned out that the fight for international socialism was running into a speed bump in that all across Europe, all across the contested territories of Western civilization, national socialist movements were eating the lunch of the international socialist movement. Uh, it turned out, you know, according to classic Marxist or Stalinist or communist theory, right, it's the idea is that your objective class status is the only meaningful, serious thing that tells you anything about a person. You know, what your job is, essentially, tells you who you are. 
the Communist Manifesto begins, Workers of the World Unite. And it turns out that that is not a particularly well-advised approach to winning the hearts and minds of people. It turned out that across the world, there were lots of people who loved the idea of socialism, loved the idea of redistributive economics, loved the idea of, of, of an overweening God state that would, that, would, that would lift people up and all the rest and get rid of class differences and all that. But these people still wanted to stay Germans or Italians or French or British. Um, the idea that somehow because a factory worker in Cleveland pushes the same switches as a factory worker in the Ukraine that these two guys should have as much fellow feeling and camaraderie for each other as, they, as say, a factory worker and his supervisor would, turned out to be ludicrous. You know, a factory worker and a supervisor, the supervisor may be married to his sister, they may have gone to school together, they speak the same language, they read the same books, they watch the same movies, they play in the same you know, football league, who knows? But they're both Germans, or they're both Frenchmen, they both find the same identity in their culture. And so you had these movements spring up, that were independent of Moscow. And Stalin recognized the threat that this posed. And so in 1928, he comes up with the theory of social fascism, which was essentially a, um, you know, a papal edict or a fatwa from the, from the Kremlin that says, in effect, any left-wing socialist, progressive, whatever label you want to use, or any left-wing organization anywhere in the world that is not loyal to Moscow that does not follow the policy line as set by the Internationale or the Comintern or whatever, henceforth must be called fascist, must be seen as objectively fascist. So you have the theory of social fascism. So all of a sudden, under this theory, FDR becomes a fascist, according to Moscow. Uh, the head of the Socialist Party, uh, Norman Thomas in the United States, is declared a fascist. Um, Trotsky, later on, not coincidentally, uh, when they finally put that ice axe in his head in Mexico, it was because he was allegedly leading a fascist coup against Stalin. The word fascist comes to mean heretic, outlier, dissident, disloyalist, traitor, anybody who is disloyal to the, to the, to the party lines, the Soviet cause, the, to, the, to, the, to the greater good, becomes labeled a fascist. But the funny thing is, is that the idea that we've inherited today, that fascism and communism are these opposite phenomena, um, was quite transparently imposed in the 1930s. Um, uh, Leon Trotsky, in the 1920s, in the, early, in the very early 1930s, um, he wrote a lot of interesting things about fascism. He called fascism middle-class socialism, or right-wing socialism. Karl Roddick, one of the leading Marxist theoreticians, made the same argument. But what happened, with, thanks in part to the theory of social fascism, the right wing and right wing socialism was cut off from the socialism. They threw the socialism away and they just started calling anybody who's disloyal to Moscow right wing. And we've, we've kept that practice largely intact ever since. So that to this day, the idea of, I mean, the, the people get called fascist the most are the people who break with the left. The word neoconservative was coined by the socialist Michael Harrington and the editors of Dissent to describe left-wingers who had broken, had broken, were breaking with the left. The neo was explicitly and openly invoked as a way to conjure images of neo-Nazis. This is a practice that we've seen you know, time and time again. It is a, it is a standard recourse. Now, it, it's worth pointing out that this idea that fascism and communism are opposites 
makes no sense, just as an objective argument. Um, you know, it, it, it used to be there was a flat line spectrum, right? And you would have communism or Bolshevism here and fascism or Nazism here. And the further away you got from the good stuff, you know, communism, the closer you got to fascism. And this is an argument that suffused the Frankfurt School of Psychology, that um, suffused like the authoritarian personality of the 1950s. All of these studies by people like Richard Hofstetter and whatnot in the United States all worked on this assumption. Um, but then you have the sort of updating of this argument that you get partly thanks to Hannah Arendt and Clinton Rossiter to a lesser extent and some of the other students of totalitarianism in the early 1950s. They start arguing, oh, it's not a flat line spectrum, because partly because that's just impossible to defend. Um, it's a circle. And you'll get this tweedy, you often get on the college campuses, you get these sort of tweedy, elbow-patched college professors who will go up to the board and they'll say, I'm not an extremist, right? I'm not a communist, I'm not a fascist, I'm not either of these things. After all, we all know that extremes meet and that the further you go to the right, it becomes indistinguishable from the left. And this is a big part of Hannah Arendt's Origins of Totalitarianism. And the, the, the upshot of it is, is that the more extreme you go this way, the closer you get to this way. And then the professor will draw it on the board and he'll put himself at the top of the circle and he'll put all bad things at the bottom of the circle. So the net result is still the same. They are still at the opposite end of all bad things. The problem with this is, what, is that it is, makes no sense. It is what Alexis de Tocqueville would call a clear but false idea. Intuitively, it feels right. It just makes sense, right? But in reality, nowhere else in life do we talk about opposites meeting. Things can't be so tall they're short, so fat they're thin, so hot they're cold. But for some reason, something is supposed to be so right-wing, it's left-wing. The only exception to this rule I can think of that has ever come up is we do sometimes say that bulldog puppies are so ugly they're cute. But beyond that, it makes no sense to be talking about how something is so right-wing, it's left-wing. The reality is, as Richard Pipes, the intellectual historian from Harvard put it, is that Bolshevism and fascism are not opposites. They are both heresies of socialism. They share the same intellectual roots, they share many, many of the same intellectual assumptions. The Nazi party flag, which you've seen in a thousand movies, um, and I apologize in advance for the, ha the practice of Americans casting all the Nazis with British actors, it's not my decision, um, uh, is this big sea of red, right, with a white disc in the center and a swastika in the center of that. If you read Mein Kampf, which I don't recommend because it's a awful book. Um, uh, if you read Mein Kampf, you'll find that Hitler explains how he came up with this flag. This flag was his idea. Hitler was, if nothing, a brilliant marketer. And he explains that the red in the flag is to attract communists and socialists to the party, to get them to show up to the meetings, because red, the red flag was the symbol of the left in Europe. And in fact, if you, the social science on this is fairly settled, that the, there was enormous crossovers from brown shirts to red shirts and from red shirts to brown shirts. These were, this was Coke versus Pepsi fighting over the same constituencies in, in Germany. Now, it, the argument I have about the United States, which I, I don't want to get into too much, but I think it's somewhat relevant to this point because it illustrates why this idea that communism and fascism are not in fact opposites, but they are both, they're not identical phenomena, but they're related phenomena. They are, they are um, 
they're uh, brothers from the same parentage. Uh, one way to prove it, one, may, one way to make this case is what I've just did, sort of give you a sense of this history, and I go on at great length in the book about this history. Another way to do it, since some of you may not trust me, um, this is bizarre as that might sound, um, is you can actually go back and look and see what progressives um, and liberals had to say about fascism when it was new and fresh in the world, before all of the spin and, and propaganda had twisted everything, before the useful idiots in the West had gotten to work. And lo and behold, you will find that a shocking number of American liberals and progressives and British progressives and socialists, uh, the Fabians, I hate to say it, but the guys who founded this university don't have a great record on this stuff, um, uh, did not see fascism and communism as opposites. Uh, Lincoln Steffens, the man who famously, the muckraker, great progressive muckraking journalist who had famously said, I've been to the future and it works after he gets back from the Soviet Union. The year before had gone to fascist Italy and come back and said pretty much the same thing. Throughout his career, he would refer to the Lincoln, the, the Lincoln, the, the, the Italian slash Russian method. You could see that what they were doing in Italy and what they were doing in Russia were kindred and related experiments, which was the watchword of the age, experimentation. Um, and whatever you think of, of Stefan's analysis, the idea that you would refer to it as the Russian-Italian method, a phrase that was borrowed by many of the New Dealers, certainly doesn't, doesn't suggest that these things were opposites. Right? Ida Tarbell, the famous muckraking journalist who brings down Standard Oil, the State Department didn't want to give her a visa to go to, the, to, go to fascist Italy because they thought she would cause too much trouble. She goes there, she comes back, she is just smitten with Mussolini, thinks that what they're doing there is incredible and wonderful and progressive. Uh, uh, Will Rogers, he's named the ambassador at large for the U.S. press corps. He goes on a fact-finding tour of Europe. He comes back from fascist Italy. He's uh, met on the docks by, the by a reporter from the New York Times. He's asked, what did you think of, of Mussolini? And Will Rogers says, that is some wop. I'm high on that bird. <laughs> um, his line, not mine. Um, uh, the New Republic, which in the United States is still the flagship liberal publication, um, which was founded by Herbert Crowley, essentially the George Washington of the progressive era, the founder of progressive thought, the guy who gives meaning to both of the, to the agendas of both Woodrow Wilson and to the, the progressive agenda of, of Teddy Roosevelt after he leaves the White House, uh, who wrote The Promise of American Life, which is still considered the Bible of American progressivism. Um, he had a full-blown man crush on Benito Mussolini, defended Mussolini in the pages of the New Republic for 10 years throughout the 1920s, compared him routinely to Abraham Lincoln, didn't care about the violence, didn't care about the dictatorial stuff, got to break some eggs to make an omelet. Um, Charles Beard, arguably the most influential left-wing economic historian, economic intellectual economist of the 20th century, at least in the United States, openly defended Mussolini's experiment and said it's something that we needed to incorporate in the United States. Um, now, it's absolutely true that a lot of these guys like the Soviet Union more, right? George Bernard Shaw clearly liked the Soviet Union more, but it also saw no reason, one of the founders of the school, but saw no reason to say that uh, Hitler and Mussolini were both progressives, that were both on the right side of how we need to solve today's problems. All of these progressives, all these socialists, all these left-leaners shared one common consensus, uh, if that's not a redundancy which is simply that 
the era of liberal capitalism was over. What we needed was a new, um, a new era of rule by experts, men, serious men, hard men, who could make the tough decisions about uh, melding technology with uh, economics and science to pull, man, pull mankind out of its doldrums, out of its silly little backward um, practices and customs and into the sunny uplands of history. Uh, one of the best examples of this is H.G. Wells, another Fabian socialist, um, hugely influential in the United States. In the United States today, he's basically remembered as a science fiction writer. But in his day, he was one of the most, if not the most influential uh, intellectual in the English-speaking language. Massively influential in the American progressive movement, on the social gospel movement, one of the central Fabian socialists. In 1932, he's, given, he's invited by the young liberals at their summer camp at Oxford University to give a speech explaining what his philosophy is and what he thinks the path forward is for, for liberalism or the left or socialism. And he says, you know, I've been trying to come up with a label that describes my philosophy for years and I've never been able to do it. And he runs through all of these weird ones that he had. And he says, I finally stumbled on something that really explains what I'm about, what I'm getting at, where we need to go, that w what will provide the, quote, phoenix-like rebirth of liberalism. And what was it that he came up with? His words, liberal fascism. That's where the title of the book comes from. He also called for enlightened Nazism. And I, I could have called my book that and really made friends. Um, so what is the relevance of all of this for today? Well, I have to skip over a lot of things in my book but um, to get there. But I do want to open it up to Q&A. Um, and I'll leave you just with a few points about today. If one of the lessons of the Holocaust, if one of the lessons of the fascist period, right, of the mid-20th century, of totalitarianism generally is never again, right, that we must not let this happen again. Um, if we are going to be, as a culture, eternally vigilant for the creeping hands of fascism everywhere, then it seems to me a reasonable proposition that we should be looking in the right direction. Period, full stop. Um, instead, what we have is this practice of basically, first of all, we, since the 1960s, we have this practice of basically pointing at people in uniforms and yelling fascist, you know, which I think is an incredible slander and, and, and know-nothingism because, yes, people in uniforms can be fascist, but people in uniforms are also pretty well known for killing fascists. Uh, in the United States, in the United Kingdom, policemen, soldiers, they take oaths to uphold the law and protect your liberties. That is not a fascist oath. No conservative um, is opposed to the, you know, conservatism is not against all government. There is a proper role for government. There's a proper role for government to maintain order and protect the rights and liberties of, the, of its citizens. That is not a fascist tendency. That is a tendency more properly associated with another word, civilization, right? Um, and so, this tendency to point simply at you know, cops who are trying to bust up a mob and say, oh, those are the fascists, misses the point entirely. All of the real fascists, the self-declared fascists, the, the Nazis, all started as mobs. Long before any of these groups took power, they were a bunch of skull-cracking goons in the streets trying to impose their will to power. They all start as mobs, black shirts, brown shirts, all of them. And yet we have this idea that we teach, especially to college kids, especially to young people, that 
mobs are in and of themselves beautiful and glorious things. And they, you know, they're the expression of the popular will and the kids need to be rebellious and all of this sorts of stuff. Mobs are dangerous and terrible things, right? And I have no great love for them. And I think that if you're going to look for fascism, first place to look is not to the people maintaining public order, but to look to the really big crowds. Um, secondly, another point that I think is worthwhile if we're going to be on eternal fascism vigilance watch is to keep in mind something, that, that, that fascism was popular. It wasn't, yes, the Nazis were started out as a really creepy, goonish bunch of, uh, you know, Dungeons and Dragons player cult-like freaks. Absolutely. But they caught on because what they were espousing was popular. They tapped into the, the first successful youth movement in Europe was Italian fascism, openly proclaimed so from all Western newspapers. Uh, the Italian fascist government often bragged about how, you know, the, no one in the government was over 40. Um, the Nazis openly declared themselves as a youth movement. Um, uh, the, the Nazis were the first, they weren't necessarily the first green movement, but they co-opted the first successful green movement and, and associated themselves with it. Um, uh, the, the extent of, of Nazi sort of ideology and its overlap with a lot of green ideology, ideology today is a fascinating subject. And people think that I'm just simply being ad hominem when I bring it up. So I suggest people read a book called The Nazi War on Cancer by a guy named Robert Proctor, who's one of the most esteemed medical historians in America, if not the world. Um, and he, will, he goes on at length about how the Nazi whole grain bread operation, about its, uh, its public health campaigns, were no less fascist than the yellow stars in the camps. Less evil, everyone's willing to, to concede less evil, but evil and fascist are not synonymous terms, right? And let me say again, I completely understand why fascist has the connotation that it does. Again, I went to Rode of Sholem Day School. I was, taught, I was taught a lot more about the Holocaust than I was about Judaism. You know, I went to a very liberal school that was subsumed with guilt about the Holocaust. We watched it, we watched this stuff endlessly growing up. Nonetheless, I would want to do nothing to minimize the moral horror of the Holocaust. But it is worth pointing out to people who want to say that the, the Nazism is the signature evil and it's sort of silly to talk about these other things, that more people were rounded up and slaughtered on an industrial scale in the name of socialism than in the name of fascism by orders of magnitude. Stalin, at minimum, killed, what, 20 million people? Mao killed something like 65 million people? Pol Pot, Kim Jong-il, uh, Che Guevara, we have this schoolgirl crush on in Hollywood these days. Um, these were murderers, soaked in blood murderers. And yet, if I call you a socialist, you know, I'm saying, oh, you're idealistic, you're maybe confused on politics, and you're Belgian. Um, uh, I'm not saying you're an evil person. If I call you a fascist, automatically, you're beyond the scope. You're beyond, you're beyond public and polite conversation. And it's also worth pointing out again that the, the only people really in the fascist column who count in the sort of genocidal butchery column um, are the Nazis, who were themselves socialists, at least in my book. Um, uh, there are lots of bad things that the right wing can do in the Anglo-American tradition, but they, they do not take the form of wholesale totalitarianism. They can take the form of a sort of authoritarian, traditionalist dictatorship of some kind, which would be bad, 
or sort of an anarcho-capitalist dystopia, which would be bad, but the, the totalitarian isms of the 20th century, I would argue, all reside on the left. And if we're going to be upset or be consumed with the fear of, 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 of these things happening again, we should at least have that in mind. Getting back to the idea that fascism was popular, it takes no intellectual courage to point to the things that you don't like and just yell fascist. And before people say, well, aren't you doing just the exact same thing? I should point out that at least I do have a chapter called We're All Fascists Now, which I include myself in. And I point out that there are all sorts of things that come up straight through fascist ideology, fascist aesthetics, fascist culture that are mainstays in our popular culture now, mainstays in our literary culture now. And some of them are just fine. You know, I mean, George Bernard Shaw was hugely popular in Nazi Germany. Adolf Hitler personally said, this guy won't be, cannot be censored. And the Nazis used George Bernard Shaw routinely as a justification for their regime. That doesn't mean George Bernard Shaw is a terrible playwright that we shouldn't read anymore. But um, I do think that if we're going to talk about these things manifesting themselves, we should at least be aware of them. You know, words that they teach on college campuses all the time in the United States, like deconstructionism, logocentrism, these were not just merely Nazi buzzwords. These were words coined by Nazi philosophers. And yet you would never hear it. Meanwhile, conservatives, we are supposed to own our intellectual pedigree going back seven generations, right? Every state's rights, you know, uh, slave, pro-slavery, pro-Jim Crow guy in the United States, if I say I'm for federalism, and, which means in the United States pushing things down to the most local level possible, Second someone hears that that's also what defenders of, of, of segregation were in favor of, it means I'm a segregationist, right? People routinely use the word progressive as the sort of antimatter universe version of fascist, right? The opposite, fascist just means bad, progressive just means good, right? Ooh, it's a progressive coffee shop, it must have good coffee, you know? Ooh, it's progressive music, you gotta listen to the words. Um, it was amazing at the, at the CNN YouTube debate last summer in the Democratic primaries, um, they asked Hillary Clinton, someone asked Hillary Clinton, what is, liberal, what is a liberal and are you one? And Hillary Clinton gave a wonderful answer, wonderfully Clintonian, in the sense that she wanted to take credit for positions she doesn't actually hold, um, where she says, um, well, you know, liberal, it, was, it wasn't a bad definition of liberalism, classical liberalism. Liberalism used to mean um, freedom of the individual against concentrated power, um, but now it's simply come to mean big government. So I don't call myself a liberal anymore. I call myself a modern progressive, which has deep roots in, the, in, in, in American history. Uh, Barack Obama, after he had one of his big primary wins, he gave a speech at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And he said, what better place than here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where the progressive movement was born to reaffirm the ideals of our campaign? Well. Let's give Barack Obama the benefit of the doubt and assume he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. Because the progressives at the University of Wisconsin were soaked to the bone eugenicists, imperialists, racists, who would have fought to their last breath to keep Barack Obama's father from ever being allowed in the United States, um, who would have fought to the last breath from ever allowing their parents to be his parents to be married, and many of them would have argued that his mother should have been sterilized. And yet, you call yourself a progressive, it just means you're the good guy. And I think if words are going to have meaning and we're going to have to, if the right is going to have to own its intellectual history, at minimum the left should be aware of it.
Also, because we don't understand what totalitarianism was and what the totalitarian mindset is, we don't recognize it even in our rhetoric when it comes up. I'll give you one example that's very common these days. The cult of unity, right? Um, Barack Obama loves unity. You know, whenever you hear him, you know, hopeful unification for more hope and unified unification for unified hopefulness or whatever the hell you know, these speeches are, which are really lovely to listen to. Um, it's worth pointing out that unity is not a good in and of itself. It is, um, it is an amoral phenomenon. Um, unity can be wonderful, right? When the village, everyone drops what they're doing and saves the little girl from the well. That's a wonderful thing, right? But a lot of bad things can be unified, too. You know who are unified? Rape gangs. The mafia, right? They're unified, too. Um, in the American political tradition, the notion that unity is a good, a good enough itself is considered, up until very recently at least, ludicrous. You read the Founding Fathers, Federalist 10, Federalist 51. It's all about the importance of faction, separation of powers, divided government, pitting you know, the, the legislative branch against the executive branch, the, the judicial branch against both of them. The country is divided up into state governments. Those state governments are divided up into subdivisions as well, pitting one group against another, checks and balances, all in the fear that the majority will become unified and oppress the minority. The Bill of Rights enshrines the sanctity of the individual's liberty, which is the opposite of the cult of unity, right? In the American political tradition, the hero is the man who stands up to the mob and says, you're not going to lynch this man today. It's not the mob. There is a political ideology that says that unity is a good in and of itself. There is an ideology that says that, that unity is a political virtue. The word fascism comes from the symbol of the fascies. It's a bundle of sticks around an axe, meaning strength in numbers. It says that strength in numbers is in and of itself a sign of political virtue, a sign of goodness. And uh, that, whatever, that idea, whether it's good or bad or however you come down on it, it is not a fundamentally liberal idea in the classical liberal sense, right? It is not an idea that we would associate with American and British notions of individual liberty and freedom. Lastly, I just want to make one last point about the, the problem of good intentions. Nowhere in my book do I say that, that, that liberals or progressives or socialists or any of these people are genocidal Hitlerite murderers or any of that sort of thing. I don't commit the no true Scotsman fallacy and say that, you know, because these guys like organic lattes and Nazis liked organic lattes, therefore they're all Nazis. I don't do anything like that, um, as much as some of my critics try to impose that on there. But I think the fact that, that the intentions aren't evil makes that all the more important to be vigilant. I mean, there's a reason why we say the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? Um, it's amazing. You know, the, the, the book, in the book, I say that the, the masculine vision of the, the sort of 1984 Orwellian concept of a of a dictator stomping on a human face. That is not in the cards. I don't think Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama or anybody in the mainstream in the United States or in Great Britain has anything like that in mind. And, and I have every confidence that they are patriots and would stand up against any kind of threat like that to our liberty. What I do say the real fear is, the legitimate fear is, the Huxleyan vision of a brave new world where you know 10th graders in the United States for generation now have been writing essays trying to figure out what's so bad 
with the world and Brave New World because everyone's happy. The state provides prepackaged joy to everyone. Um, that, I think, is the real danger. And that is a danger, I mean, more of a danger in the United Kingdom than it is in the United States. I am amazed what you, with what you people put up with. I mean, just astounded. Just since I've been here, there's been a story in the press about the leftover police who are going to come and check your home to make sure you're you know, using your Tupperware appropriately. There's a thing about everyone's going to mine your private data. Um, so I don't know that the state can keep track of you. Every day there's another abuse of closed circuit cameras all over this country. You've got cameras trying to catch people eating in their cars. Um, there was a piece just yesterday in the paper about um, how in large sections of, of, of Great Britain, uh, government economic, the government accounts for 60 to 70% of all economic output. Um, that is terrifying to me. And I'm really beginning to see you guys as the canary in the coal mine for the United States in a lot of ways. But, um, you know, and, and, it's, and it's an amazing thing because we think that no one can do bad if their intentions are good, right? And we define intentions as good intentions as basically being these progressive intentions. We let all sorts of things pass us by. And I'll end with just this quick anecdote. I think I'm one of four, maybe five conservatives in captivity who's actually read Hillary Clinton's It Takes a Village. And again, I do not recommend it. Um, and um, it's a fascinating book, though, right? Okay. According to classic fascist doctrine, you need to create crises that force people to rally around the state, to rally around the government, to rely on the government to solve their problem. And um, Hillary Clinton has all sorts of crises, and they all revolve around children. You know? um, one of the arguments that she makes, and she cites some psychologists and all this kind of stuff, that babies, human babies, are born in such an incredible state of crisis that their brains are so fragile and so susceptible to bad inputs that the state must intervene from day one. It's just got to get in there and deal with the crisis of being born. And moms and dads are just not up to the job to deal with this. And so therefore, you need the, the door knockers from the state to come in with their clipboards and check things out, right? And so she's, she goes on about this stuff. And I'm reading it. And you know, in, the, in, the, in 1984, the sort of the iconic image of Big Brother are these giant television screens that are up all over the place where some guy barks at you telling you what to do, work makes you free, take the blue pill, whatever, you know, yelling at you, telling you how to live your life. So I'm reading, I'm reading Hillary Clinton's thing, and she's talking about how this crisis about babies is so terrible, and which is an ongoing progressive desire. The idea to crack the nuclear family goes way back. Woodrow Wilson you know, famously said when he was president of Princeton University that the chief job of the educator is to make your children as unlike you as possible. Um, uh, so anyway, you know, Hillary Clinton's saying you know, this terrible crisis about these babies who need state intervention from day one. She said, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have giant television screens put up, in her words, wherever people gather? And she gives examples, waiting rooms, bus stations, all over the place, that would run on a continuous loop, instructions about how to raise a good, healthy, progressive child, you know, teach people how to, how to raise their children. And that book was reviewed by every major publication in the English language. And no one caught it 
as a sort of ominous or disturbing or even just creepy, you know, sort of idea. You know, I mean, she's, I mean, she literally says, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have jumbotrons all over the place teaching people, teaching mothers how to breastfeed? And, uh, and it just went over people's heads because we are not trained to look for these kinds of things from that direction. And the lesson of the book, the lesson of this Huxleyan thing is that these are not evil people. These are people who don't want to stomp on a human face. They want to hug you. They want to kiss your boo-boos and make them better, right? But anybody who's been hugged by a smelly ant knows that an unwelcome hug can still be oppressive. And it is not the proper role of government to hug us and, and make our boo-boos feel better. The proper role of government is well-defined in the Western tradition, and it has nothing to do with this stuff. And it is the government, not the concept of the state that we get from Germany that we want to have in the first place. Anyway, I'd love to open it up to questions. Thank you all very much. Right, I'd like to um, turn things over to questions. Um, we have roving, roving microphones, so if you'd indicate, put your hand up, I'll call probably batches of two to three questions and then give Jonah the, the chance to respond. Please wait till you're asked and I'll hand the microphone to you. So, first gentleman at the back there to start with. If the rest of you can keep your hands up so I know. Hi. Um, I'd like to know why you didn't call your book maybe left-wing fascism instead of liberal fascism, which is clearly an oxymoron. Well, several reasons. First, I don't think it's an oxymoron. Second of all, H.G. Wells didn't think it was an oxymoron, so it's an elusive you know, reference to uh, something that an actual significant intellectual who had a coherent ideology came up with the label for it. Um, third, there's a reason why people have that phrase, uh, don't judge a book by its cover. Um, I'm, I'm sort of of the obligation to try and sell my book because, and I don't think that's a negative or illegitimate thing because I'm actually getting, trying to get people to read my book because I believe what I wrote in it. And liberal fascism is an intention grabber. So is the smiley face with the Hitler mustache on it. And I make absolutely no apologies for it. I get a lot of left-wing um, and liberal critics who say to me, you know, why didn't you know you call it, you know, uh, liberal statism or uh, you know aspects of, of a collectivist policy, 1914 to 2000, you know, um, and yet the same people who make those sort of criticisms. I'm not necessarily saying that you're doing that, but the same people who made these criticisms, and there are lots of them, have no objections to the onslaught of liberal books that have come out just in the last few years like uh, Christopher Hedges' New York Times Pulitzer Prize winning reporter came up with a book called American Fascists, where he basically says that any believing you know, conservative Christian in the United States is a fascist. No one denounced him for that. Naomi Wolf is on, you know, I don't know, what, her third or fourth bizarre paranoid book about how the United States is morally and factually indistinguishable from Nazi, not, 1930s Nazi Germany. Um, which is just cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. And uh, she doesn't get this criticism. So part of my problem with these kinds of questions or criticisms is that they seem to be very one way. Thanks. I was um, 
quite surprised by uh, the appointment of John Holdren to National Science Advisor. And um, his being behind the uh, population bomb and being part of the, the crowd which su supported that type of thing, and that, that's an explicit endorsement of um, forced sterilization and explicitly Lebensraum, and that, that we need the space for, for the people who survive to, to live in. Um, is that a continuous thing, or was it sort of 30s, 70s, and then nothing until now? Have, have I just missed it, or is it, is it a genuinely new thing that this has become acceptable and mainstream? Um, paranoia about population growth um, is one of the main drivers of the eugenic movement going forward. There's a wonderful book by a British author, I think it's John Kerry, uh, Intellectuals in the Masses, where he goes through you know, basically the canon of, of late 19th, early 20th century intellectuals and writers and how they were basically just terrified of big crowds of smelly people. And, um, you know, H.G. Wells is full of this stuff about the need to get rid of the sinister and polyglot populations of the lesser, of the lesser sort. Um, uh, and I think this is a perfect example of one of these things that if any of these sorts of ideas came from the right, people would immediately catch on that, oh my gosh, there's something really disturbing about that. Whether they were called fascists or not, fine. But they would not like it if it came from the right. Peter Singer, who's been hailed as the most important ethicist in the world by, I think, the New Yorker or the New York Times, uh, pro, you know, uh, esteemed professor at Princeton University, uh, the sort of intellectual guru of the animal rights movement in the, in, in, uh, uh, in the world, um, He's written, I think, I think the essay is literally called Why It's Okay to Kill Babies. And he's not talking about fetuses. He's talking about one-year-old babies. Um, he is a champion of euthanasia. Uh, there are Scandinavian deep ecology activists who call themselves eco-fascists and believe that we need to sort of start killing large numbers of people if we are going to get back into balance with nature. Um, I think this, you know, certainly you find this stuff in Paul Ehrlich. It goes straight through the history of the, um, uh, uh, the sort of the Rockefeller funding and, and Planned Parenthood and all the rest. Uh, it comes up more from time to time. Concerns about overpopulation are much less than they were even 20 years ago um, because it's not as much, it's legitimately not as much of a concern. Um, and so it comes up, it comes to the fore more often, but it comes up quite a bit. And, it is still the same Malthusian nonsense. Um, and it's important to remember that Malthus is really the guy who drives much of, of uh, is the sort of the beginning of eugenics, he's the beginning of Darwin. I'm not saying that Malthus was wrong about everything, he's a brilliant guy and had a lot of interesting insights. But this idea that human beings are the problem runs central to all sorts of leftist and, and some rightist, but leftist, the sort of the cult of the expertise, that if only people would fit into the square pegs that we've laid out on our little chalkboards, um, everything would be better. And, and the bits that won't fit into these pegs, well, shouldn't we just chuck them away? And I think that mindset exists far more on the left than it does on the right. And it just doesn't get the attention it deserves. Because these people are being provocative and speaking truth to power and, and raising troubling questions. But if, we, if people on the right did it, it would be just called racist. We've got a couple of questions over on this side, so if I can take them both together, you first and then the man behind. Um, can I just ask you about framing this debate in terms of the global financial crisis, because the parallels with the 1930s are obviously uh, uncanny, and um, 
it, it, fascism normally emerges in a time of economic uh, crisis and it makes it easier for them to win the argument because right. it's very difficult to resist the massive growth of government, for example, that Obama and Gordon Brown are proposing. Right. And it's almost impossible to, to resist, to make the case that markets work, uh, that government shouldn't, um, sh shouldn't be uh, increased. So could you talk about it in, the, in those terms, please? We'll take a, the second question as well. Um, why do you think it is that it's been uh, conservative governments in the US who've been most comfortable with uh, like Latin American governments run by right-wing strongmen who've in many cases actually been sympathetic to Nazism and in fact taken in former Nazis? Mm -hmm. And I mean, another similar thing, um, why do you think it is that when uh, German scientists were brought over to work on, on NASA projects after the war, it was thought you know, best to put them in, I think it was Huntsville, Tennessee, rather than one of the other NASA sites that were populated by more general spread of the public? Um, I'll ponder that one while I answer the first one. Um, uh, and, I, and I salute you, because I, I really relish new questions. And you know, I've been talking about this book from this argument for a long time, and that's a new one, so it's good. Uh, um, on the global financial crisis, I think you're ab absolutely right. Um, I think, you know, I didn't even talk about the New Deal very much, and, um, and its relationship to the war socialism of World War I in the United States. Um, uh, and one of the arguments that I make in the book is that the intellectual underpinning for um, both fascism and sort of New Deal and Wilsonian economics, or Wilsonian politics um, in the United States is this idea that inspired intellectuals across the world the moral equivalent to war. William James in the 1890s wrote an essay called The Moral Equivalent to War. The argument was, was that war brings out what's best in people, best in society, causes people to rally around the state for large endeavors, drop their personal you know, agendas and whatnot. And progressives were obsessed with this as a model for economics. Uh, you read the early progressives, the, the Fabians, they're obsessed with the idea of industrial armies, where you would draft people out of school and put them in factories for 30 years in uniform and then you know, send them on their way with a nice little pension. And um, the New Deal was explicitly, unapologetically, sold and rationalized and legitimized as a moral equivalent of war argument. It was, FDR comes into power, he campaigns promising to rekindle the war socialism of Woodrow Wilson. Remember, FDR himself was a um, Wilson retread. He was part of the Wilson administration, which was a terrible regime that did absolutely objectively fascistic things, uh, police thought crimes, shut down newspapers, sent propaganda agents into the country, beat people up in public. I mean, Wilson administration was the greatest shame of the 20th century American politics. Anyway, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln. No. Um, so uh, I would argue that it's been this obsession of the left. I'm sort of the anti-Naomi Klein in this regard. It has been the obsession of the left ever since to rekindle this moral equivalent of war argument. Uh, environmentalism is a great example of it. You know, Time magazine, about six months ago, I thought outrageously photoshopped or doctored the, the iconic picture of the Marines raising the flag at Iwo Jima to having the Marines raising a tree under the banner of patriotism is the, uh, uh, that green is the new red, white, and blue, right? And um, uh, that sort of mindset is in full speed right now. It was very interesting. You know, one of the um, uh, sort of standard rhetorical tropes of Mussolini, of, of, the, of the National Socialists in Germany, 
was to say that they were pragmatists, you know, that they reject neither left nor right was the rallying cry, that they, it was, they were the third way, that they rejected um, the, the false choices of the right and the left, that they rejected both capitalism and communism, and that they were going to have this new synthesis that was going to lead us to the sunny uplands of history and whatnot. And um, FDR himself openly said that he was this pragmatist, right? Openly said that he wasn't about ideology, that he was really about experimentation. That was the watchword of the age. Um, he actually named one of the civilian conservation corps camps Camp William James. Um, and uh, Barack Obama is playing this card very well. It was fascinating. In Philadelphia, right before his inauguration, to kick off his little train ride to Washington, Obama gave a speech in which he said, America needs a new declaration of independence. We need to declare independence from bigotry, no, we need to declare independence from small-mindedness, prejudice, bigotry, and ideology. Now, as a proud ideologue, I take some offense at that, right? Because ideology is not this demon word. Ideology is merely the, a word that we use to describe um, a set of principles and aims that we apply to hard questions, right? Does it expand freedom? is an ideological question. Does it protect a woman's right to choose is an ideological question. And there's nothing wrong with them being ideological questions. But what Obama is trying to do is preempt any criticism from people who disagree with him. In his first explanation of the economic crisis as president-elect, um, he said, I'm open to ideas from across the ideological spectrum, from Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, but there's one thing that we know. Only government can solve this problem. This is his idea of inclusiveness. Agree with me on all my first principles, and then we can argue about where to put the deck chairs on the Titanic. And um, I think that we live in a moment where, very much like the 1930s, uh, people who have always thought liberal capitalism was bad and discreditable have finally found another moment where they can discredit it. And we are going to have, as lovers of free markets and whatnot, it's going to be a lot of work to roll back a lot of these assumptions. Um, there is this, the, we've seen, it's amazing, this rebirth in the idea of the fragility of capitalism, right? I mean, uh, communist socialist societies are constantly falling apart, um, constantly going under, constantly immiserating millions of people, but they're supposed to be solid as a rock. And meanwhile, markets have been lifting millions and millions of people out of poverty, and it's so fragile, it's a delicate little flower, what we need is statism, you know, and that'll protect it. Um, and you see this in this obsession with authoritarian capitalism. You have all these intellectuals um, who are gaga about China. And um, you know, China, just it's worth pointing out, China adopted markets as a last resort. And when I say last resort, I mean, first they killed 65 million people. And when darn it, that didn't work. They said, all right. Let's try markets. And boom, hundreds of millions of people are lifted from poverty. Literacy rates go up. Quality of food goes up. Quality of housing goes up. Uh, gross domestic product goes through the roof. And all of these jabbering bandersnatches, like Tom Friedman of the New York Times, their initial, immediate reaction is, gosh, it must be the authoritarianism, you know, which has immiserated people for millennia. And so I, I think that this quest for a new New Deal, this quest for a new authoritarianism, government-run stuff, is just going to have to work its way through the system, and, and defenders of free markets are going to have a very hard time for a while pushing back at it. In terms of the question about South America, um, I guess the short answer is um, the guys, the guys who supported, uh, you know, right-wing dictators who, who harbored Nazis 
were cynical sons of bitches. But I don't think it was rooted in any sort of ideological argument about, um, oh God, we've got to protect these Nazis. I don't think there's anything in the historical record about that. Um, and uh, putting Nazi scientists in Huntsville, Alabama, um, you know, maybe it was a maybe it was a smart move in terms of understanding the racism of these Nazi scientists and saying, well, they'll they'll see racism there and they'll feel more comfortable, or maybe they just figured that you know Southerners are more polite than Northerners and they'll get along better there. I have no friggin' clue. Um, but I'm just not sure how much of an indictment it is to any of the, the argument I have, but I'll, I'll continue to ponder it. Gentleman at the front. Two questions. Yeah, a number of things I would say, but just three things. Sure. Number one, uh, FDR. Now, you say he was called a fascist. Uh, in fact, the right wing in America called him a communist when he was first trying to be elected in 1932. So no, there's that point. Number two, about the, um, uh, uh, yes, National Socialists being socialists. Now, anyone, any party can call themselves socialists. It doesn't mean they're socialists. You've got to look at the platform. You've got to look at what they're doing. Now, there were people in the Nazi party who believed uh, uh, that they were socialists, but Hitler got rid of them in 1934. He massacred the, the lot of, of, of that wing hmm. to make it just nationalists. So he was no socialist. The National Socialist Party were no socialists. Now, the third point, which is the main point I want to make, oh, yeah, the fourth point, the New Deal. Now, the New Deal was actually based on Keynes in economics, and Keynes in economics was saying that the free market cannot automatically adjust itself. It does need, when it goes down, government intervention. During a recession, you do need government intervention because he maintained and I understand proof that free markets can't automatically adjust themselves to uh, uh, full employment. And the fourth point is the, um, uh, yeah, our Mein Kampf. Actually, I had to read that myself when I was doing political uh, philosophy. Now, in Mein Kampf, <laughs> he doesn't believe he's a communist. Hitler is fervently opposed to communism. Mm -hmm. He says we must get rid of it. It is an evil. Mm -hmm. He doesn't, he, he didn't see the same thing as you saw. He didn't see them as similar. He saw them completely opposite. Okay, there are a lot of things going on here, and I think you're wrong about all of them. Um, so, where to start? Oh, let's start with FDR. Yes, some people on the right called him a communist. That had something to do with the fact that a lot of the brain trusters were, in fact, communists. They were deeply, deeply sympathetic to the Soviet Union. Uh, there's a enormous amount of historiography about how the early, in the 1920s, uh, future brain trusters had gone off to the Soviet Union with their clipboards and took notes and, and found it wonderful. Um, the, in fact, the, the, the FDR administration was in fact infested with actual communist spies like Alger Hiss. Um, uh, so regardless, yes, there was a lot of name calling in the 1930s, but I'm not sure that that disproves my point. I'll give you a better example of the fascistic, you know, if we're going to do these sorts of, you know, sort of quasi guilt by association things. Hugh Johnson, Hugh Ironpan, Ironpants Johnson, who ran the draft board for Woodrow Wilson, was put in charge of the National Recovery Administration, which was the crown jewel of the New Deal. It was the most important aspect of the first New Deal. Um, he was named Time Man, Times Man of the Year in 1934, I believe it was. Um, the National Recovery Administration, was, the hopes for recovery were all pinned on the National Recovery Administration. 
What does Hugh Johnson do when he comes into office? Well, he unpacks his stuff in his office, and the first thing he does is he hangs up his portrait of Benito Mussolini on the wall and then starts handing out fascist tracts to other members of FDR's administration um, that were provided by the fascist government, um, by the Italian fascist government. Um, Hitler, uh, FDR himself admitted that many of the things that they were trying to do in the United States were very similar to the things they were doing in Germany and Italy. But he had this great line, he says, but we were doing it in a more orderly way. Which I always love the idea of you're absolving yourself from charges of fascism because you're more orderly. Um, um, I think you're quite wrong about, the, about Keynesianism and the New Deal insofar as the Keynesian part comes later. The early New Deal um, was much more of this sort of technocracy stuff where they were going to organize and, 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 and streamline the economy, make it more rational and whatnot. Those sorts of programs, the codes, which were basically written by big business um, um, and, and did real violence to civil liberties in the United States. There were people who were put in jail for charging too little to dry clean suits. Um, uh, that stuff, by I think general consensus, at least did nothing to help fight the Great Depression. And most economists would argue it actually hurt um, and prolonged the Great Depression. Uh, but we can have more of that argument later. In Mein Kampf, you're absolutely right that Hitler hated the Bolsheviks, right? despised the Bolsheviks. Um, but that, you know, th there's, there's this idea that, you know, because Nazis hated um, communists, putting aside the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact and all of that kind of stuff, right? The Nazi-Soviet Pact. Because communists hated Soviets and Soviets hated, uh, because Nazis hated communists and communists hated Nazis, then therefore they were really different. But that's not how human nature works. In fact, what you have is usually the hatred of small differences, right? Um, it, it's part and parcel of this notion that greater understanding breeds peace, which is just nonsense. Israelis and Palestinians actually understand each other very, very, very well, far better than Brits understand either or Americans understand either, and they don't get along. Uh, meanwhile, Guatemalans and Palestinians get along just great, and they don't know jack about each other. Um, the greatest hatreds of the 20th century are between groups that are very similar. Uh, Greeks and Turks, uh, Hindu, uh, Indians and Pakistanis, um, uh, Hindus and Muslims, Israelis and Palestinians, uh, Coke versus Pepsi. If you look at the um, social science on this, there's a wonderful book called Why Hitler Came to Power by a man named Theodore Abel, who's a very entrepreneurial social scientist. And he went and did enormous interviews, enormous numbers of interviews, with the early fighters, the joiners of the Nazi party. And they say over and over again in their testimonials that they loved the economic message of communism and socialism, but they hated the idea of kowtowing to the filthy Bolsheviks and Jews in Moscow. And that's what they loved about national socialism, is it gave them the opportunity to both be proud Germans and socialists. And if you look at the Nazi, Nazi national anthem, um, is, uh, you know, uh, the refrain is, you know, we fought the red shirts and the reactionaries. Reactionaries are the monarchists and conservatives and whatnot. Um, the red shirts are their competition against the reactionaries. The, the socialists in, in the, the communists in the, in the Reichstag had a motto, which was first brown, then red, because they saw them competing over the same slice of red of revolutionary radicalism. The conservatives, for want of a better word, and I'm not a big fan of these kinds of conservatives by any stretch of the imagination, in Germany, 
were the least likely to join the Nazi party, the least likely to be enthusiastic about the Nazi party. We have this movie that's out in the theaters right now, Valkyrie, right? Um, which blissfully, they refrain from having Tom Cruise talk in a German accent. Um, but it's important to remember that in the, in the plot to kill Hitler, there were scores of noblemen, barons, guys with fawn in their, in, their, in, their, in their name. These were the old sort of junker patriots who despised or were embarrassed by these, these radicals um, from the SS. Meanwhile, the highest ranks of the SS and the Nazi party had almost none of that nobility, almost none of those aristocrats, because it was seemed to be a sort of shabby thing to be that enthusiastic about this rabble-rouser. Um, Adolf Hitler had, had very little support from conservatives. Um, the, the little support that he did have from people who could be called conservative, the, the support he did have was almost purely opportunistic. Um, but I, I concur entirely that that the Nazis um, hated, you know, the brown shirts hated the red shirts, but it was the hatred that comes from such close competition for the same um, constituencies. If you read Michael Burley's wonderful new history of the Third Reich, he has got these wonderful anecdotes about these guys. It was sort of the fashionable thing to do. It was like this, this traveler from Britain is wandering around Germany, and he spends the night with this, this guy he meets at a pub, and the... Um, the guy says, oh yeah, you know, last year, me and all my mates, we were all red shirts. But this year, the cool thing to be is a brown shirt. Because these are both radical movements and they were both fighting for the same people who want to overthrow everything and fix every, you know, and, 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 and throw the whole system out. Um, and a last word on Mein Kampf. I agree with you that it's a mess of a book, but it's also a marketing book. I mean, it's just a, it's, it's, it doesn't tell you that much about what Hitler's real thought is, except for some of his very uh, duplicitous stuff about anti-Semitism. He was always anti-Semite, and he tries to claim that he studied to become an anti-Semite. Um, the great book by Adolf Hitler, and I mean this seriously, is a book called Hitler's Table Talk, which is just transcripts of his dinner conversations for several years, in which he talks about how much he hates religion, talks about how sort of, uh, sort of how much he hates bourgeois morality. Um, and he also talks about invading Poland and all of that stuff, too. Um, but he get a much better sense of the real man because they're just transcripts of the things he had to say over a dinner conversation. And you get a much better sense of the man than you do from Mein Kampf. Anyway, I'm rambling on. Let, let me take three questions together this time. Okay. So, so hold, hold your fire. And I'll, okay? I'll keep it short. <laughs> got one at the front, one second row from the back, and then gentlemen in the red shirt. So we could have one, two, three, and then... Uh, hi. Sorry. Um, just very quickly... Um, a lot of people, um, I think, have probably compared the American right to fascists for quite, well, for some reasons which might include, you know, things like the Patriot Act and an obsession with patriotism, verging on nationalism, um, and a, an obsession also with the family um, and with issues including a woman's right to choose, the sanctity of um, heterosexual relations. Um, and a whole list of others. I, I wonder, having given this subject great study, which, in your opinion, are the comparisons that really bite and that are really accurate? Fair enough. You mentioned how uh, progressive left-wingers can call for very totalitarian, authoritarian things and, and get away with it. And my question for you really was, was why, if only with each other? How do they know who's in the club? Is it the language they use? Is it nods to 
egalitarianism, utopianism. What do you think? It's the secret handshake. Uh, and then the uh, it's been observed elsewhere that a um, fascist is a racist socialist. Um, and then usually in a conversation when fascist is used, the term racist usually follows it afterwards. Do you think there's any connection between how fascism became seen as a purely right-wing phenomenon in the same way the term racist became assumed as a right-wing phenomenon despite the racist policies of people like Stalin and Pol Pot? Um, okay. Let me start backwards just because that's freshest in my head. Um, yeah, I, I, I think... There's no disputing that you know Nazi Germany was soaked to the bone racist, right? And um, because of this healthy, not healthy, wrong word, because of this um, robust tension between um, uh, two branches of the left, as I would argue it, between the fascists and the pro-Soviet communists um, over who um, had the right narrative of the 20th century, this, the communists won. You know, I mean, they won that argument. The, the, these, the, the, the defenders of the Soviet Union ran through root and branch of elite institutions in, in Western Europe and Britain and, and the United States, and they controlled the narrative because there was the narrative of the victors. Um, and if you look at the way the history of, of uh, the fascist period in Italy has been written by the communists, uh, there's an incredible number of the distortions. And, but it's worth pointing out that Mussolini, when he was still the elder statesman of the two, uh, of Hitler and, 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 um, and, and Mussolini, Mussolini routinely denounced Nazism as racist, called it 100% racism. Um, racism was not a central part of Italian fascism. Jews were, in fact, overrepresented in the Italian fascist party from its founding until 1938, when Mussolini basically becomes you know, a sidekick to Hitler and has to do his bidding. And even so, it's a fascinating story. It would make a wonderful, morally complex movie in that not a single Jew of any nationality controlled anywhere in the world by Italian forces was sent to the death camps until the Nazis invade um, Italy and take it over. Um, so a lot of that sort of gets lost. We've just seen we have fascist, you know, Fascist equals Nazi, Nazi equals racist, and it all gets sort of swamped, swept up together, and it, it, it's very easy. Part of the problem also is that conservatives in the United States were just incandescently wrong about how they approached the issue of the civil rights movement. You know, uh, the Republican Party was actually far better on civil rights than the Democratic Party was up until the early 1960s. And conservatives, I think, upholding a, a worthwhile and good principle which is the sovereignty of states and of local communities to govern their lives, drew out their moral credibility by defending Jim Crow, which is indefensible. And I think the, I, I wish the civil rights decisions and all the Supreme Court decisions and whatnot had been decided differently, but um, a different, decided by different means, but the result, I think, was an absolute moral victory for the right and good, and that conservatives need to own up on that, and I think they largely have. But at the time, it made it, you know, American racism at home was very useful for communists in the global propaganda war, and they pointed to it regularly as a sign of America's backwardness. And because conservatives were on the wrong side of that fight, it was much easier to tie these things together. And, and sort of the, the propaganda that came out of the communist world did that regularly and was, was wholeheartedly imbibed by lots of people. Um, the first question about the Patriot Act and, and whatnot. Um, 
where do I think accusations, I mean, the question is, where do I think accusations of the right being fascistic have merit, right? And that's the essence of it. Um, well, I have just, uh, let me start it this way, I guess, because I think it's a perfectly legitimate question. Um, uh, I end the book with this afterward about the tempting of conservatism, um, which I think you have here in Great Britain to a great degree as well. And what I mean by the tempting of conservatism is um, there is a vocal segment of the right, which thankfully has been largely discredited because of the failures of the Bush administration and compassionate conservatism, that makes the argument big government's not going away. And so long as it's not going away, um, and we don't think it really necessarily should go away, rather we want to use government to do all these wonderful conservative things, right? Um, Michael Gerson, who was Bush's first speechwriter, who's a columnist for the Washington Post now, makes this argument all the time, you know, that we need to, that libertarianism is immoral and we need to embrace the idea of using the state to do wonderful things. I think this is outrageous, and I get into lots of fun arguments about this. Um, uh, I don't like it when the left thinks that they can use the government to uh, engineer society, um, and I don't think the right should be in the business of engineering society. And yet there are lots of people on the right who believe that if, if, if only the right people get in, we can do all these wonderful conservative things and achieve these conservative policy aims. Um, and to me, that is the exact category error that the left has been making for the last century, which is this idea that my preferred policy outcomes um, can be implemented if I just get all the data right and turn these knobs just so and everything will be just fine. And um, I don't like the idea of right-wing progressivism. And um, in that sense, um, I, I think the right has, is, is falling into a trap that, that we should get out of. Um, I don't think conservatism is purely um, classical liberalism. It's more than classical liberalism. But a conservatism that is not willing to conserve classical liberalism isn't worth conserving. And um, being restrained by the dogma that the state is the, is the option of last resort is incredibly useful for preventing tyranny. Um, I think you can certainly go back and find elements of progressivism um, that, uh, you know, progressivism was profoundly a religious movement and abolition, uh, not abolition, uh, 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 prohibition and all that sort of stuff. Um, and even eugenics had a sort of bizarrely religious component to it. And, um, some of those sort of, those people um, now reside on the right in America, the, on the Christian right. I think, I, I welcome having the Christian right in the conservative coalition, and I think they're useful to have, but so long as they're constrained by conservative dogma that says you can't use the state to impose your vision. Um, on the right to choose stuff, on abortion stuff, you know, I'm a very reluctant pro-lifer only in the sense that I don't think the government should be in the business of deciding who, who human beings are. I don't know when life begins. I do know that one minute before delivery of a full-term baby, it's a human being, even though it's in its mother's belly. I don't know that the embryo or the blastocyst or whatever is a human being. I don't know. I do think that it's a very dangerous thing for the state to get in the business of deciding these things. So I would say that the, the, right, the, the, the abortion question can cut both ways, in that the, um, the restraint on government from deciding these questions is a nice brick wall on a slippery slope. 
um, which has real, you know, has sad consequences, no, no, no matter how you do it. Um, on the Patriot Act, I, I really have no problem with the Patriot Act. Um, and I don't think many people understand what the Patriot Act was or what it did. It's amazing how none of it is being repealed or even being talked about being repealed. The 9-11 Commission had no problem with the Patriot Act. Um, and Matt, in fact, many of the things that happen in Europe are far more intrusive and, 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 and worse to civil liberties than anything that was in the Patriot Act. Um, you know, and normally in my speeches I have this whole spiel about what a terrible guy Woodrow Wilson was kicking in doors and throwing people in prison for thought crimes and all of this sorts of stuff. And people say, well, didn't George Bush do the same thing? And the simple fact is no, he didn't. Um, now, that doesn't mean everything he did was great or wonderful, but um, as a conservative, as I was saying earlier, I believe there's a proper role for government in preserving order, right? You can't have liberty without order. We learned that in Iraq, right? We gave them a lot of liberty and no order, and fat lot of good that did them. And so we spent a long time trying to catch up on the order front, and now liberty is meaningful somewhat. You know, it's still a fragile place. Um, and it is the proper role of government to provide order. Um, and you, so you would have to make an empirical case about where it overstepped the boundaries. And even if it overstepped the boundaries, I don't think that leads to fascism. That might lead to authoritarianism or to badness. Um, but badness is not equated with, with fascism. So, um, but I, I think it's important at least to note that, that this totalitarian mindset, as I write in the book, is written to the human heart. Right? We're all a little Lockean and we're all a little Rousseauian. We all want to belong to the general will and the tribe and feel like we get our meaning from the collective and the group and all of the rest and we want to impose this meaning on others. That is a natural human desire, the quest for community. Um, the problem is, is when you try to impose it through the government. And because that's a category error. And the overriding lesson in my book is that the government cannot love you. The government can't be your mommy or your daddy or your great aunt Sally or your church or your synagogue or anything like that. It can only be government. Um, and the attempt to make it into something else, the attempt to actualize that category error is what leads to all sorts of tyranny. I think I, think I can take two, two more questions. We're, we're running out of time. So two people have been waiting a long time. First of all, the gentleman in the blue shirt and then the woman at the very back. So, and I'm afraid I'll have to stop there. Okay. Okay. Uh, thank you for uh, pointing out the etymology of the word fascist, which I never heard before, which is the famous bundle rod. But with the um, act, but we must add that there was also an axe coming out of it, because it meant that yes, we are united, but if you don't follow what we say, then uh, there is some kind of punishment. And this is present also in British culture since around at least since around 1700. Um, there is a staircase, the new staircase at Hampton, Hampton Court, uh, where on the dado you find these symbols, because it, it meant unity, of course, yes? Mm -hmm. Then, um, could you, there was could the... Could you answer, ask, ask a question rather than make a statement? We've got only well, a yes, few minutes left, but, uh, question. Uh, yes. yes, okay. Uh, <laughs> when you meant, meant uh, uh, Nazis being racist, yes, towards the Jews, I think that in part, partly, partially, the, the, the reason why they were against communism is because there was these two big groups, the Teutons, you know, the Germanic tribes versus the Slavic tribes. So uh, there was also this underlying racism. Sure, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, okay. Can, can we have the, the, the final question? I must, I must stop there because I'm cutting off a number of people who I'm sure would like to have been involved. So question and then we'll have Jonah's final answer. Um, have you ever, ever persuaded a lefty in conversation of the point you're making in this lecture? Thank you. 
I don't know. No, um, yes, just not on, not anywhere near a microphone or a camera, because the. Uh, what would you say is the most persuasive argument to use in those situations? Well, that's a tougher one. Um, um, because I was going to say what 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 you often get from from lefties, as you put it, um, is this grotesque minimization. Who cares? You know, or no liberals do what you're talking about. You know, this is all straw man. Or um, we always knew that there were elements of totalitarianism on the left and on the right, and it's sort of a deliberate attempt to sort of force the plane down rather than um, go along with the argument. Um, uh, I think one of the most useful things to do, and it depends which argument you're talking about, and one of the legitimate criticisms of the book is there are a lot of arguments in it, is um, when, like for example, one, of the, one reviewer in a particularly asinine review uh, has, you know, he says, Goldberg says that Adolf Hitler was a man of the left. That's the chapter of the title, is Adolf Hitler, man of the left. Um, again, one of these punchy titles that is irresponsible of me. Um, and uh, he says, Goldberg says that Adolf Hitler is a man of the left, but when Hit Adolf Hitler takes power, the first thing he does is crack down on independent labor unions. And this is supposed to be a sort of silver bullet argument. Ha, what a fool Goldberg is. For he doesn't know that Hitler cracked down on labor unions, and that's something only right-wingers would do. And I love to ask these people, how did independent labor unions do under Stalin? How did independent labor unions do under Castro, under Mao, under Pol Pot? You know, were they just thriving? Were they going on strike and getting all sorts of concessions from the government? Um, and the larger point is, is you can, you can, um, uh, you can play that game on all sorts of fronts, where all I ask when people talk about the historical argument, if people are going to say that Nazism wasn't left-wing because it did X, whatever X is, and there are all sorts of Xs I've heard, all I then ask them to do is say, how did they do X in the Soviet Union? How did they do X in Cambodia? How did they do X in Cuba? And invariably, they did it the exact same way. But for Nazism, it's damning and distinguishing. And for all these other things, it's trivia. And I just don't agree with it. You know, genocide. Again, socialists, much bigger on genocide than you know, Italian fascists were. Um, so I, I find that to be a sort of useful approach, I think. Um, on the, uh, I, I, I've now even forgotten the question from the gentleman about the fascists. Um, I should point out, because it's a little misleading, it might be a little confusing what I said about the symbolism of the fascists. The fascists themselves, the bundle of sticks around the axe, right? Um, that goes back to the Etruscans in like 600 or 6,000 BC or something like that. They find these things all over because it was a useful weapon. Uh, the fascists were on the mercury, uh, the mercury penny in the United States for about 15, 20 years. Uh, the fascists were the symbol of the Fourth Republic of France. The fascists are still on the uh, emblem of U.S. military police. I think the fascists are uh, on the seal of Norway. They're all over the they're all over the place in the U.S. Capitol. But um, the word fascism is derived from fascio, which means bands of little brigands and guys you know, running around the hills of Italy or whatnot. And they get their name from fascio because it means band of sticks, you know, strength in numbers kind of thing. Um, I agree with you entirely about the point about 
Nazi racism being more than just anti-Semitism. There was all this stuff about the Slavic, you know, the Slavs were going to become the slaves of the new master race and, and, and all of this. Um, it's not as if, you know, Germans looked at, at Africans as, as equals in the, you know, um, um, in any way, shape, or form. Um, but I would just say that, you know, Nazi racism, the way I would describe it, the way I would understand it in the larger argument of my book, is to understand that all of these totalitarian isms, right, all of these ideologies of the left, these are all different, they're the real reactionary ideologies. And I mean reactionary in the Marxist sense, right? According to Marxists, reactionaries are people who want to turn back the clock or restore the old order. Well, all of these totalitarian isms were really reactionary because they wanted to turn back the clock all the way to the tribe. And they just had different definitions of tribes. Um, uh, the, Italian fascists believed in the tribe of, of, of it was, and socialism is a, is a tribalism. It's, it's the tribe of a class. Um, fascism was the tribe of, of, of the state. Um, everything within the state, nothing outside of the state. Fa Nazism was the tribe of one race, socialism for one race. And that mindset is reactionary because it's still this idea that we get all our meaning from the collective. We get all our meaning from the group. All of our rights come from our relationship to others. Um, and I would argue that the most radical and only truly radical new idea in the last thousand years is this idea of the sovereignty of the individual that we very much get from places like this. And well, not this school, but this land. And, um, and that is something that to be cherished. That is the exciting idea, the, the idea that we are captains of ourselves. Um, and, um, and, and that is the side of the fight that I want to be on. So anyway, thank you all very much for having me. Now, <clears throat> now before, before you all depart, there, there were just a couple of things I wanted to say. Um, firstly, I'd like to give my thanks to Jonah. He did say at the beginning he, he didn't have a lecture, but he managed to give a very fluent extempore lecture um, with, with no notes. So, so we're very grateful for that. Secondly, there are indeed many arguments in the book, and I'm sure lots of you would have liked to have continued talking to him. There is a, a book signing after this lecture. The book is, is, is available on the stand um, outside and I'm sure if you would like to, uh, to, to, to um, purchase the book, have it signed by Jonah, um, I'm sure he'll be happy to talk to you after as well. So thank you again thank you. for uh, coming today.